Great to have the Gerald campus on board, and uh, starting next year, we're actually going to have some live preaching out there. Austin Jackson's going to be teaming up with Chuck and helping to share and minister out there, and so we're really excited about that. But you guys can still watch me online sometime later, maybe. But we've been talking about the seven feasts of the Lord, and we're going to finish that Today, we're not going to finish, but we're going to stop. I mean, you can kind of, how many of you know you can just kind of go on and on and on? There's always one thing leads to another and just kind of spiders out from there. As we've been talking about every week from Leviticus chapter 23, verse 2, it says, The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And again, that word feast literally means divine appointment. And so God set up seven feasts as divine appointments in his mind. And again, I always think to myself, if God set these up as seven divine appointments, kind of sounds like they should be pretty important to us, because I think they're pretty important to God as well. As we've been mentioning, there are four spring feasts, and those are Passover, Unleavened Bread, uh, First Fruits, and Pentecost. So those are the four spring feasts. And again, all seven of these feasts are just saturated in Jesus. You say, why do I like studying these feasts? Because again, they're saturated in Jesus, but they always also give us a kind of a prophetic calendar of the Lord. And so all four of the spring feasts were fulfilled when Jesus came the first time. Again, he died exactly on Passover. The Holy Spirit came exactly on Pentecost. I mean, isn't it amazing? God's calendar exactly exactly as he had drew, drew it up. And so in the summer, there's kind of a summer harvest, and I think we're living in that time, looking at this prophetically, but one day he's going to come back again. Now, I don't understand everything about the feast, but I have a hunch that when he comes back, just as he fulfilled all four of the spring feasts when he came the first time, I think the three fall feasts he's going to fulfill when he comes back the second time. And again, those three fall feasts are trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. All right, and we've been mainly looking at tabernacles, which is the last of the seven feasts. As we've been mentioning, three of these feasts, he required them to come back to Jerusalem. And we're going to find that Jesus, as we look at our text today, Jesus, when he walked this earth, made that pilgrimage back to Jerusalem to experience the feast of tabernacles. So the three they were required to go back to Jerusalem was Passover, Pentecost, and then tabernacles. And so again, we're going to look at that today. We've kind of been hanging out at tabernacles because it's the last of the seven feasts. It would really conclude the, the, the calendar year for the Jews in the eyes of God. And it really does correspond to our Thanksgiving and Christmas. Again, I think we can celebrate at times by ourselves. But there is something about coming together as the body of Christ that really does make it pretty special as we gather together. So the Feast of Trumpets is the first fall festival. For us this year, it fell on September 18th and 19th. The Day of Atonement fell on September 27th and 28th. And all three of these feasts fall in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. And so the, the Day of Atonement, if you remember, the Day of Atonement was the only day of the year that the high priest could go in the presence of God. Isn't it really amazing when you think only the high priest could go in once a year and you and I have the privilege of living in the presence of God 24-7 
We are so incredibly blessed. And then on the 15th day of the seventh month, they would celebrate Sukkot. Everybody say Sukkot. That's the Hebrew form of tabernacles. And so that would be the last of the seven feasts was uh, Sukkot. And so it says back in the book of Leviticus, and this is a verse we haven't looked at specifically, but I want to look at it today. He says, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. So the feast of tabernacles was seven days with a Sabbath rest on the first day and a Sabbath rest on the eighth day. Now that eighth day, I want you to tuck away in the back of your mind that eighth day. Because I've studied this a lot and I never really noticed till this year as I was studying that eighth day. And as I've done some research and looking at that eighth day, because we know that Tabernacles is seven days. But God put on an eighth day there, and it's amazing that many of the rabbis have different opinions about that eighth day. Was it a part of tabernacles? Some said it was a part of tabernacles. Others said, no, it's, it's different, but somehow it's connected to tabernacles. And others say it's, it's completely separate. Which is it? I would say yes. I'm not really sure. It's definitely connected to tabernacles, and although I think it's unique in itself, but I want to talk today. I want to eventually focus on that eighth day that God added to tabernacles. So kind of keep that eight in the back of your mind. So he says, celebrate with joy before the Lord your God for seven days. So the Feast of Tabernacles was really meant to be a time of tremendous joy. It was a time that they were thankful and they celebrated what God had done for them. But it was also an anticipation of what God was going to do, and it's the future blessings of God. And that's why Tabernacles really fits in with our Thanksgiving and Christmas, because we should be thankful. And this feast is a feast of being thankful, being joyful. But it's also a feast that goes back and remembers when God came down and tabernacled with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, that God was willing to come down, that Jesus was willing to come down and take on an earth suit and tabernacle with us. So this feast really does fit in well with our Thanksgiving and our Christmas as well. I love how 2 Corinthians 5 describes our body as a tent. Don't you love that? And so Paul says our earthly body is just like a tent. One day we're going to get a building on the other side, but right now we're living in a tent. And that's what tabernacles is. That God came down, he lived in a tent in the Old Testament, and when Jesus came to this earth, he lived in an earth suit, a tent. Aren't you glad that he loved us enough to come down and tabernacle with us so that you and I could spend an eternity tabernacling with him on the other side. And so Jewish tradition has written down, he who has not witnessed this celebration, talking about tabernacles, he who has not witnessed this celebration has never seen joy in their life. Now, most of us, according to that, we've never seen real joy. I just want to tell you, it is high octane. The Feast of Tabernacles is all out. I mean, it is seven full days of all-out worship. I mean, at the end of Tabernacles, I would probably have to take three days vacation and recover. I mean, it's, it's all-out energy as we think about celebrating Tabernacles. I've showed this sign before, just want to give it in one more time. This was actually on a billboard on, on a sign on the marquee outside. Church is a lifeboat, not a party boat. 
And sometimes we walk out of church like we've been eating green persimmons. I mean, I don't know what they're doing to those people in there, but I hope I don't, I don't get it. Can I tell you, there's a time to be solemn. There's a time to be broken. That was atonement. But when you get to tabernacles, it should be joyous. It should be happy. We should be free-spirited. And so as I mentioned, I think every church should have out front. Church is a lifeboat that should become a party boat. How many of you are ready to get happy today? Yeah. The 8 o'clock service, it took about halfway through before a few of them got free, all right? But this is 930, all right? You guys should be well awake by now, those of you who are watching. So I just want you to have the freedom every once in a while. Like, Woo! Glory! Maybe not. But just hang on to that, all right? And so again, Tabernacles is a great celebration of worship, of joy, thanking God and looking forward to future blessing as well. As we mentioned, you say, does God want us to participate in tabernacles? Because some people have told me, well, God gave that to the Jewish people. And so I just want to say, I think God not only wants the Jewish people, I think he wants all of his children to celebrate tabernacles. One of the reasons I believe that is because in the future, when we're celebrating that millennial kingdom of God on earth, he's going to want every nation on the earth to be a part of tabernacles. It's got to be pretty important to God if he's going to ask every year for a thousand years. And the Bible says in Zechariah here, all the nations shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. How crazy is it going to be during that millennial reign of Christ? And I believe that we as the bride of Christ are going to be over there with him, ruling and reigning, so we're going to be hanging out with him. But how crazy is it going to be for every nation on the earth to come to Jerusalem for that week? It's going to get crazy, but you that have been there go, I heard about this. This is going to be good stuff. And I mean, we're already going to be prepared because we have a little bit of idea. It's going to be an all-out joyous celebration. And so the Feast of Sukkot is one that Jesus attended when he walked this earth. And so again, you know it's important to God because when he walked this earth, he, he made that pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for this feast. And so John chapter 7 says, now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And I just want to give you just kind of an overview of the chapter. The Bible says that Jesus' brothers were talking to him about going to Jerusalem. Now that tells me that as he grew up in a Jewish home, that he always went back, and his brothers always went back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Because they asked Jesus about it, and Jesus said, I'm not going to go up just yet, although he, he snuck back up there, because he knew the Jews were looking for him to kill him. And so he says that he went up quietly, kind of below the radar he still wanted to go even though the Jews were looking for him to kill him because he knew his time was not yet but I just want to say this this would be about six months before he would be crucified this is the last time he'll ever go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles because in the next spring when he goes up for Passover he will be the Passover lamb but at this point it's in the fall he's going up to worship. And the Bible says in the middle of the feast, in verse 14, that he taught in the temple. And so he's teaching in the middle of tabernacles. And twice in, the, in John chapter 7, it says Jesus cried out. Now it isn't often in the Bible where Jesus cries out. And so when Jesus cries out, that tells me 
had to be pretty important. But one reason I think he cried out, it was so loud in tabernacles, it was so joyous, in order to be heard, he had to cry out. And so one of the things he cried out in the middle of tabernacles, he who has sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him, for I came from him. And then the Jewish officials sent people to get Jesus. And so there's a lot going on at Tabernacles. The Jews are trying to get him. He's up there trying to celebrate the feast. And I love it says it wasn't his time. That's why the Jews weren't allowed to take him at that point. All right? And so every day during uh, Tabernacles, one of the things they would start their day off at dawn, the priests would leave the temple and go all the way down to the pool of Siloam. And the pool of Siloam was about a 524-foot drop in elevation. So, I mean, you talk about downhill. How many of you know you had to be pretty good shape to be a priest to go down and get that, that water out of the pool? And so it was fed by the Gion Spring. And this Gion Spring, this pool of Siloam, really represented, because it came from a spring, eternal life, eternal hope. And so if you remember in John chapter 9, it was the pool of Siloam. Remember when Jesus healed the guy born blind? The Bible says he put, he spit, put some salve, put his, the mud on his eyes, told him to go wash in this particular pool. And when he did, he was healed. So this pool has kind of always represented life, represented God taking us who are spiritually blind and allowing us to see. And so every day during tabernacles, they would make this trek down to the pool of Siloam. They would fill a golden vessel full of water, which would represent two things. First of all, as they took this bowl or this pitcher of water, it represented being thankful for the rain God had just given them in the harvest. I just want to tell you, water's pretty important. I grew up in the city, but without water, there is no farming. There's no gardening. There's no anything. There's no life without water. And so part of the reason they took the picture was to thank God for the water that he had provided, but it was also asking God for future water. And in a spiritual sense, they were asking God for his incredible living water to be poured out. So it really was an incredible celebration. And the last day was called the great day of the feast, the seventh day of tabernacles. By the way, the Pool of Siloam is the lowest point in altitude within historical Jerusalem. So you talk about they went down as low as they can go. Isn't it kind of amazing that when we get humble, when we get down, God can bring us up. And so they would bring the water up, and the Bible says here, or the Bible doesn't say, but this is kind of a historical Jewish writing, at dawn those in attendance would descend with torches in hand and draw water from the Siloam pool. This was done with singing in great joy, as it says in Isaiah 12, you shall draw water in joy from the springs of salvation. Now the whole idea of the water pouring ceremony is not in the Torah. It's not in the law, but it actually it goes back to the book of Isaiah. But every year during tabernacles, every morning they would go down and they would start the day by getting that golden pitcher and they would fill it with water and they would bring it back up and pour it on the altar. And they were doing it with celebration, with joy. I mean, they were again given 100% to God. And so as they brought the golden pitcher through, guess which gate they came through? Watergate. Watergate. I could have named that. I mean, that's duh. They brought the water. What, what gate do we go through? The Watergate. 
And so they, they went through the water gate, which was the easternmost of the southern gates and closest to the altar ramp. And so they would come up, and as you can tell, they were blowing the horns. I mean, they were celebrating. And again, that Jewish writing says, if you've never been here, you've never experienced joy. I mean, they were flat out going, giving 100% into this celebration. And so on the seventh day, now every day that they celebrated tabernacles, they would bring the water up, they would walk around the altar one time, and then they would walk up and they would pour it. But on the seventh day, the great day of the feast, when they brought the pitcher up, they would walk around the altar seven times. Seven times on the last day. And so you can imagine everything is just escalating the joy. I mean, everyone is just kind of going crazy with joy and happiness. And on that last day, they would offer seven offerings for God. By the way, through the whole Feast of Tabernacles, there were lots and lots of sacrifices. As a matter of fact, they were required to offer 70 bulls during the entire week. And those 70 bulls, according to Jewish writing, was one bull for every nation. That there were 70 nations that represented all people on the earth. And so one bull was sacrificed for every nation. Isn't that kind of cool? That even in the Feast of Tabernacles, God was remembering every people group on the earth. It's no wonder that during the millennial reign of Christ, he's going to want every people group to come and to celebrate with him. And so they would get to the altar and they would walk up the altar and they would pour the water into a silver pitcher. Now two things happened simultaneous. One guy would take the golden pitcher that they had got water out of the pool of Siloam and he would pour it in a, in a bowl that was on the right side there of the altar. The other guy who's bending over with the red arrow, he would be pouring blood in another uh, vessel there. And both of those vessels they were pouring into had a hole in the bottom. And they wanted the blood and the water to run down the altar at the exact same time. And so in order to do that, blood, how many of you ever heard blood is thicker than water? And so blood is thicker than water, so they had to make the hole on the pot with the blood bigger than the hole with the water. But as they poured the water, as they poured the blood, they would run down the altar at the exact same time. Now another thing, I used to, every picture I've seen, the guy that's pouring the water is always standing up. The guy that's pouring the blood is often bent over. And so when reading about it, here's what I discovered. This was kind of funny, kind of interesting. They said at one point, somebody that was pouring the water was bent over and the people couldn't really see him. And instead of pouring the water in the vessel there and letting it run down, he was pouring the water on his own shoes. How many of you remember the etrog, those, those lemon-like things that they would carry in the lulavs? Well, as they're carrying those around, when this guy was pouring the water on his shoe, this is really funny, according to history, they all took their etrog and they threw them at the guy. That's what makes me think they had a little Baptist in them right there, all right? So they, they threw these. And so from then on, the guy who pours the water always had to stand up so they could see that he was pouring the water in that vessel. And so I just want to give you a, a visual image here. I'm going to have a blue line and a red line coming down. And so as they began to pour in these vessels, the water and the blood flowed down at the exact same time. Isn't it crazy how everything they were doing 
is saturated in Jesus. You remember when the Bible says in John 19, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Just according to this tradition that the blood and the water, they ran down at the same time. I mean, you study this and it's just so exciting to see how saturated. A few years ago, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem began to reenact the water-drawing ceremony. And uh, this year, I was, I was told they didn't do it because of the COVID, but they would go through, they would celebrate, they would blow the horns. I mean, they began to reenact. It hadn't been done all the way since way back in, in Bible days, but they're just starting to reenact it. And notice when they get back to the altar, guess which one's pouring the water? The guy who's standing more upright is pouring the water. And the other guy, instead of blood, they're using wine now. But again, the same principle that as they pour the water, as they pour the wine or the blood, their goal is to get it to run down the altar at the exact same time. Again, very beautiful symbolism there. And so it's on this day, as they've gone around the altar seven times, they're up there pouring the water and pouring the blood. And the Bible says it was on that last day, the great day of the feast. And you can just imagine all the joy, all the horns, everything going off as Jesus watches them pouring this water on the altar, symbolic of God's blessing, God's future blessing. He gets excited. And he stands up at this moment on the last day, the great day of the feast, and he proclaims that, that we're going to get to experience living water. The real, true living water from God. But keep in mind the setting, all the joy, everything that's going on. He picks that time to begin to talk about pouring out the Holy Spirit on all mankind. The Bible says on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and again he cried out. Twice during tabernacles, he stood and he cried out. And this time he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He was so excited to begin to share that God had something better than physical water to give, that God had living water to give. You remember when he was with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Remember he told the woman, if you drink this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink the water that I give, you will never thirst. And so here he begins to proclaim that. He said, he who believes in me, and I love how it says that. Aren't you glad this isn't for the pastors or just for the missionaries? The Bible said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He stood up at this moment and getting the idea of everything that's going on, he began to announce for the first time, God is going to pour out his living water on everyone who believes. What a tremendous announcement. Another thing they would do at Tabernacles is they would have the temple lighting ceremony. Now in the temple courtyard there were four monster candelabras and on the top of each candelabra there were four golden bowls. So four candelabras each candelabra had four bowls. They held about five gallons of oil for each bowl and notice here and this is just kind of gives you an artist's rendering up on the top 
is the women's court. So the women were up high, the guys were down below, and they were just celebrating. Tens of thousands of people would have been there. Now it's interesting, as they're lighting, before they light these candelabras, they would send a youth up there, and on his back would have that oil. Now I want you to know, it's a good thing they chose a youth to go up that pole with all that oil. Can you imagine going up there with 15, 20 gallons of liquid on your back? I would get about halfway and I would be done. But they get up there and they pour this oil into these four bowls. And I love what it says here. that The worn out priestly garments were divided into four parts. They took the undergarments of the priest. They divided them into four and they were used as wicks for these bowls. Isn't that pretty cool? The oil was in there, but they put the, the, the worn-out clothing of the priests in there as wicks, and then they would light the bowls, and literally the worn-out garments of the priests were used to be a wick for that light. A reminder of God's Shekinah glory. And when I studied this, isn't it interesting that in John chapter 19, it says the soldiers took his garments and divided them into fours. Isn't it amazing that everything they were doing symbolically was exactly saturated in Jesus? That they took his garments and they divided them into four. And the Bible, uh, the Bible, according to Jewish historians, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light. I mean, the light was so bright, they said you couldn't even find a courtyard that was in a shadow. Because again, that incredible light, and this would be part of the celebration. I don't know if you can see right in the middle of your screen, but there's a guy juggling fire. And they would have, actually have guys juggling fire. They set a minimum of eight sticks of fire. How many of you would like to be around the guy juggling fire? But anyway, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, they went all out. I mean, they were all out celebrating what God had done. I think of the verse in John 8 where Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He, he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of the world. You know, everything they were doing in the Feast of Tabernacles points us to Jesus being the light of the world and the living water. But what's the importance of that eighth day? I want to go back. You know, the Bible says that Tabernacles is seven days. But at the end of Tabernacles, there was that eighth day of rest. What in the world is that eighth day? And again, I've, I've met different people with different opinions. And you guys may have studied this longer than I have. So I would love to hear your take on it. But I got real excited this week studying why did God put an eighth day? Because there were seven feasts. The seven feasts should have completed God's calendar. Why would he add that eighth day? First of all, in order for us to look at the eight, I want to look at the seven because seven we're more familiar with. And seven is a number that kind of reflects something being whole, perfection, finished, total, complete, excellence. I mean, we look at the number seven and say that is God's completion. That is God's finality. And so the number seven has always been one of my favorite numbers until this week. Now it's, now it's eight, but let me, I'll go on. All right, so the number seven so in Sukkot, just think of how many sevens are involved in Sukkot. It's the seventh feast on the seventh month, and it lasted seven days. 
On the last day, the seventh day, they were to walk around the altar seven times. And on that seventh day, they offered seven offerings. And so sevens come up over and over and over. You would think, well, that is the end of God's calendar. And as we think about tabernacles, it prophetically looks forward to the millennial reign of Christ. And so we believe that. You say, what comes after the millennial reign of Christ? Does anything come after that? Yes, it's chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. It's eternity. And I got kind of excited when I was studying that eighth day because after we have the fulfillment of God's calendar, there's that eighth day that we get to celebrate God throughout all eternity. And so the number eight, the mystery of eight, and again, different people have different ideas. I've really enjoyed just looking at what people say about this number eight. All right? So if seven is perfection, eight is one beyond perfection. So eight would be beyond whole, beyond finish, beyond excellence, beyond total, beyond complete, beyond perfection. Why is that eighth day and what does that eighth day represent to us? And so the mystery of the eighth day, again going back to Leviticus, it says you shall celebrate the feast of your Lord for seven days with a Sabbath rest on the first day and a Sabbath rest on the eighth day. What is that eighth day? that God adds to tabernacles. Is it a part of tabernacles? I would say, yeah, it's connected to tabernacles, but yet I think it's separate as well. And so that eighth day would be something new. If seven completes what God wants to do, then eight would be that next step beyond God's completion, all right? And so how many of you remember back in probably the 60s, 70s, the Beatles had a song, Eight Days a Week? How many of you remember that? How many of you had it on your iPod? Of course, we didn't have iPods back then. But eight days a week. What, it, what was it? Remember, part of the lyrics said this. Eight days a week, I love you. Eight days a week is not enough to show I care. You guys need to memorize that. That's very romantic. What in the world is he saying eight days a week? I think he's talking about like the feast. What is this eighth day? It's kind of like saying 25 hours in a day or, 12, or 13 months in a year or 101 years in a century. I think the song is saying kind of what that feast is saying. Eight days a week is not enough to tell God how much we love him. There's not enough days to express our love for God. And so that eighth day, when everything is complete, there's that eighth day that starts something completely new and glorious. That's why I'm glad that after the millennial reign of Christ, after that, we're going to begin to reign with Christ throughout all eternity. I love to read Revelation 21 and 22. I believe that's that eighth day, that final Sabbath rest that we get to spend with God throughout all eternity. You know, this week I, I Googled, I, I don't always Google to check things out, but I thought it'd be interesting to Google what is the number for eternity. And so I Googled, what is the number for eternity? And it said the infinity symbol, the figure eight on its side, signifies without limit our eternity. I would have never dreamed that Google would have verified what I found in the Bible. That the number eight signifies that step beyond when everything is complete in God's perfect calendar. There's that eighth day, that first day of the next week that God begins something altogether new. And so 
when you think about that eighth day, which would be the first day of the next week, in the New Testament, it's amazing how many things fell on that eighth day or the first day of the next week. You know, in the Old Testament, they always worshiped on Sabbath. That seven days ended. But when Jesus arose from the grave, he did it on the eighth day or the first day of the next week. Why? Because it was a new covenant. It was something completely new from the Old Testament. And so I love how the Bible says it was on the first day of the week. The Bible says Jesus appeared to his disciples on that very night. So the first time he appeared to them as a group, it was on Sunday night or the eighth day because, again, it was something new, something different. And I love how it says in John 20, verse 26, eight days later, which would have been also a Sunday, he appeared to them again, and that's when Thomas was missing. But it's amazing how it shifts from worshiping on Sabbath, Old Testament, to the New Testament. Everything begins to shift to that eighth day because God has created something new and something glorious. As a matter of fact, as we continue, the day of Pentecost was on the eighth day. It was on a Sunday, the day after Sabbath, when the Holy Spirit came down. And so I think that number eight is symbolic of eternity. It's something God has created for us, something to enjoy. It's no wonder that the New Testament believers began to meet on the first day of the week or the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath. And so again, there's just kind of a shift in the Bible from Saturday or the Sabbath, which again is always a permanent law, to in the New Testament, everything kind of shifts to Sunday. Because people ask me, why do we worship on Sunday? Shouldn't we worship on the Sabbath? It's okay to worship on the Sabbath, but I believe we worship on Sunday because, again, God has created something new and something glorious that we get to enjoy. And so the number seven, I was just kind of thinking about the book of Revelation. Seven is everywhere in the book of Revelation. I mean, it's all over. I've given you some examples here. I mean, everything is seven this, seven that, seven, 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 until you get to Revelation 21 and 22. When it's all finally said and done, and when the millennial reign of Christ in chapter 20, you say, what's, what's after chapter 20 of, of Revelation? Chapter 21 and 22. You don't find any sevens in the last two chapters, other than it does mention the angel, who, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls mentioned something to John, but there are no sevens in Revelation 21 and 22 because, again, it's something beyond what God has prepared. And so I love in Revelation 21 and 22 when God says, Behold, I make all things new. That's eight. Eight is God doing something beyond his completion. And throughout all eternity, that number eight symbolizes that we get to rest with God and worship with God and just love on God. But here's the exciting news. Somebody says, do I have to wait till I get to heaven to experience the life of God and the joy of God? No. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said you can begin to experience eternal life right now. When you invite Christ into your life, you're experiencing that living water. You're experiencing that bit of heaven right now on this earth. We get to experience eight before eight comes. Isn't that awesome? John says in 1 John, he who has the Son has life. If you have the Son of God, you have eternal life 
already living in you. So let's go back to what Jesus said again. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus on that day, as they were celebrating the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he proclaims to everybody, you're going to get to experience the eighth day early. He who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I just want to tell you, we are so blessed. That we don't have to wait till we go to heaven to experience the life of God. We can experience it right now. He said, out of your heart is going to flow the life of God. You don't have to wait till you die and go to heaven. I think it's going to be amazing when we die and go to heaven. But he's saying, Jesus is proclaiming, I'm going to bring heaven to you. I came and lived in an earth suit, in a tent. But the Holy Spirit's going to come and live in your tent. That's crazy. I mean, God had a better plan than walking side by side with us. God wanted to come and live in your tent. I don't know why we don't celebrate Pentecost every year. That ought to be a big holiday in the church. That God loved us enough to come and live in these earth suits. goes on to say, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I I just want you to picture the celebration going on on the Feast of Tabernacles. That seventh day, everything crescendos. I mean, they're walking around seven times. Everybody's going crazy. They're pouring the water, pouring the blood, and they're thankful to God of what God has done. They're also believing God for the future. And Jesus, that's when he proclaims, God is going to bring heaven to you. How crazy is it that right now, if we take a moment and just invite Christ into our life, that heaven will come to us. That's the eighth day. We don't have to wait till the eighth day to experience the eighth day. We get to experience it right now. So I'm going to ask David to come. I asked him this week. We're going we're to sing, there's a song, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. How many of you know that song? And this is the, this is the Bapticostal side of me. And so there, there's motions to the song. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you, if you need to remain seated, please do. Other than that, everybody stand. Put everything out of your hands. If your hands are locked together, separate them. All right, if your hands are in your pocket, pull them out. So here's what we're going to do. The chorus says, spring up, O well. And when it does, we say, Splish, splash. Now, if I see, now, by the way, don't hit your neighbor, all right? This is not a time to hit your spouse. But the first time we go splish, splash, and if I see somebody not doing it, I will have you come up, all right? I mean, that's, that's how I operate, all right? All right? And by the way, if you're, if you're, if you're recording this to show on, on Facebook, you'll come up and help me too, all right? So anyway, if you see somebody with a camera, just point to them and I'll have them come up. All right, so here we go. The first time, spring up, oh well, we do splish, splash. This kind of cool. The second time, spring up, oh well, we go goosh, 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 goosh. 
Joey, you're not doing it over there, man. Everybody look at Joey. Joey, do your goosh, goosh, goosh. It's not milking a cow, Joey, man. It's, it's up, baby. <laughs> we got to get Joey free over here, man. He's, we got to get him free. All right, the last time. So the first time is splish, splash. Second time is goosh, 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 goosh. The third time is whoosh. Isn't this fun? This is a lot better in person than watching on, on video. But anyway, so here we go. When we get to the chorus, now the, the, the verse, I don't have anything. If you want, people were ad-libbing in the other service. You can ad-lib on the verse. But when we get to the chorus, that's when we all join in. So I'm going to turn my mic off so I'm not singing on the mic. Y'all be thankful for that. All right, so here we go. Chorus, big part. It's your part. I've got a river of life flowing out of me Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see Open prison doors, set the captives free I've got a river of life flowing out of me Spring up, oh well, swish, splash through my soul Spring up, oh well, goosh, 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 goosh To make me whole Spring up, oh well since it to me by love eternally. I do the chorus one more time. Can I just tell you, you guys get to watch me, but I get to watch all of you. You guys are awesome, man. Won't it be awesome in heaven? But you don't have to wait to get to heaven to experience. One more time, let's sing the chorus together. I want to pray for you, and then we'll close out with spring a song. Spring up, oh well, splish, splash to my soul. Spring up, oh well, goosh, 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 and make me whole. Spring up, oh well, whoosh, and sing to me. I hope you guys have an amazing Christmas. I hope as you go through the Christmas season, I hope as we go through the Christmas season, I just pray that that river of living water would spill out everywhere we go, that people can see a difference. And hopefully our life makes other people a little bit homesick for heaven. I love you guys. I appreciate your heart. Again, I hope you have an amazing Christmas season. Uh, we're going to have six Christmas services here, so if one of those fits your schedule, obviously we want you to be with your family. Let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll close with a song. Father, I just thank you for the Ridge family. I thank you, Lord, for being able to celebrate your love. I thank you for that incredible number eight, that, God, you have something prepared that is way beyond what we could even imagine. I can't even wrap my mind around seven, let alone eight. Father, I pray not a person here leaves without experiencing your life. I thank you that you came down and took on a, a tabernacle. You took on an earth suit so that we could spend an eternity with you. Fill us with your spirit. Just empower us to live for you in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope has a name, amen.